Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. There are certain themes that come up over and over again on this program, themes like language, culture, and preparation. All of these themes show up today, but we're tackling them a bit more directly than usual and in a way that I think will be very helpful to you, the listener. My guest today is Brother C. We're withholding his full name out of an abundance of caution. Brother C and his family are serving the Lord in a creative access Muslim-majority country in Southeast Asia. This man is one of my personal modern missionary heroes. He has sacrificed a great deal for the service of Christ, and he has taken up the mission of evangelism and church planting with wisdom and patience. Today, Brother C relates his family's call to foreign missions, and he deals with the cultural and linguistic chasm that must be traversed in order to minister effectively in the field of their labor. At the end of this installment of the conversation, Brother C will get into more of the mentality that missionaries, pastors, and churches should adopt concerning missionary preparedness. This is the first part of a two-part series on culture, language, and adversity with Brother C. With that introduction, let's get into the conversation. Brother C., I want to talk with you about this first five years on the foreign field in Southeast Asia and some of the things that you've endured and some of the things that you've learned But I want to begin with God's work in your life to get you to that region of the world. So you were involved in pastoral ministry in the Midwestern United States in a work that you had established, and you were really at a stage of life where most men are thinking about grandchildren and retirement. So how did it come into your heart to serve the Lord in missions, and how did this needy place in Southeast Asia end up on your spiritual radar? Well, thank you, Brother Lee. That's an interesting question. And um, my life has taken several different turns I didn't anticipate. Uh, the church that I was pastoring started in a living room of our home, and I'd pastored it for 10 years. It was growing. The congregation was supporting missionaries, and uh, we were doing well. But in December of 2007, I gathered my family together and just began to pray. I knew that there are 7,000 language groups in the world, and 3,000 of them are still unreached. And so we just kind of decided that we would take it on as a project of our family to try to do something about at least one of those language groups that didn't have the Word of God uh, written for them. So we began to pray, and I began to study the 3,000 language groups that still do not have the Bible in their language. And I wound up uh, on a language group in Southeast Asia And it's through them that the Lord actually led us to where we are today uh, in the country that we're serving in today. But my original thought was that I would stay in the U.S. and pastor the church. And we had several men in our congregation, young families, that were preparing to serve the Lord. And my original thought was to send one of them out, be the pastor, hold the ropes at home, uh, send them supported to the field, I do everything that they needed to be able to stay on the field and do the job there. But the Lord had other things in mind, and I realize now that because of my age and the way age is viewed in our country, that I have much more of an open door there than the younger people would have. Well, that's a that's a really interesting piece because 
missions, I think, is oftentimes regarded as a sort of a young man's pursuit. And you were later in uh, in life and ministry when you surrendered to go. But as it turns out, there are some obvious advantages to that, culturally speaking and ministerially speaking, in certain parts of the world. Were you aware of that component when the Lord dealt with your heart about deploying to this region and missions? I was aware of it kind of peripherally, but I was not focused on that. But after I got to our country and, be, and learned the language enough to begin to communicate with the nationals, uh, one Saturday morning at a prayer meeting that we had called, I asked the local pastor and, and his men, his deacons, all his men were there. I said, here's a hypothetical question. If a guy in his 30s or 40s comes to this country and maybe has three or four children, my question to you is, what can you learn from that guy? <laughs> and I'm coming from a perspective of having been a pastor and supported missionaries, and also I asked a little bit different questions. And these guys, these nationals immediately said, nothing. And so I was a bit shocked by that, so I reworded the question and asked it again. I said, so you mean that you could not learn anything from him? He said, no. I said, why? He says, because he's too young. He said, we can listen to you because you have a large family. You have raised your family. You have started a church. We have to listen to you. Our culture demands that we listen to you. But these young guys, we, uh, we can't listen to them. They're too young. Our culture won't let us. And another thing that I, I'm not sure if you're aware of, of this on the front end, but there actually ended up being some... Um, some paperwork advantages to being at a different stage of life as well. And we often don't consider that when we think, I mean, visas, um, access to, to, to countries, that's always or frequently uh, a difficulty in, in getting to certain fields. But if you're in a particular stage of life, sometimes there are advantages to that in terms of the paperwork too. Yes, for us, it was a retirement visa. Uh, the retirement visa does not go through the department de- through the Department of Religion, uh, and it's kind of its own animal, which gives us uh, freedom to actually travel around farther and wider without suspicion. Uh, where a person coming in on some type of a business visa or religious visas are basically not much of an option. Right. But <clears throat> it's very limited. But uh, uh, when we got into the country, I was 59 years old, and I qualified, and my wife and I qualified for the retirement visas, and that has been a very stable platform for us. Amen. Well, given that uh, your ministry experience and your exposure to culture, I'd say that you were probably better prepared for that big change in culture than perhaps most people that deploy in foreign missions. You had some cross-cultural ministry experience here in the States, in the region uh, that you were serving in domestically, as well as uh, foreign culture exposure in Eastern Europe. But uh, you've described the transition to a foreign field. I, I don't know that this is avoidable for, for any American going to serve on a foreign field. You've described it as a collision course with culture. There's a, there's a wall out here that, that this missionary family at some point is going to encounter. So in, in the region that, in which your family serves— what, do you, what would you say are some of the major cultural differences that you've had to adapt to? The major cultural difference is, is we as Americans think as independent, free people. Our culture is, I own property, I have this, I have my own plans, I can make up my own mind, I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. Moving into Southeast Asia is, 
is, is a huge shock because every society there is collectivistic, which means that it's a, in, it, it's a whole environment of a new mentality of everything that everybody has, everybody owns it. Nobody really has individual property rights uh, in the, fa- the, the nucleus of the family. If a person receives a paycheck and they bring that home, then everybody looks at the paycheck to see what part of it that they can have. Uh, <laughs> cooking utensils. If your neighbor comes over to borrow your cooking utensils, you have to give it to them. And then if you want to use your cooking utensils in return, you have to go to their house and say, can I borrow those cooking utensils? Because everybody views them as everybody's. And if you have it, then, then you have to share it. And this presents a lot of problems of survival for an independently-minded person uh, for his property, how he deals with that, how he interacts with the nationals with his property, and how they view him as being a selfish, egotistical American because you won't give us everything we want and you won't share with us everything that you have. <laughs> One day a guy came to me. I had a, a, a motorcycle, and he said, I really like the mirrors on your motorcycle. You need to give them to me. And <laughs> the way I diffused that situation, I think the best way to do it is, is well, you know, Americans are really not as smart as as you people are, and like we need mirrors. You people don't need mirrors, and just laugh and have a big joke and go on. But at least I kept the mirrors on my motorcycle. Yeah, well, that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, response to that particular scenario because you you actually you you averted that difficult scenario without embarrassing that man and without shaming that man. And I guess that's an that's another element that's sort of a big deal in that part of the world. Yes, it is. Uh, and one probably the most difficult thing to deal with in ministry is everything in our part of the world has to take an indirect approach. You cannot directly address a problem uh, because of the collectivistic society and and their whole world view. If someone spills a glass of milk, we in America say, who spilled that? And we focus on the person that committed the action. We want to know responsibility. We want to know fault. We want to know guilt. We want to know all those things about an event. There, they never look at those facts. They look at something happened. They never look at the person that did that. So when you're trying to explain about sin or saying that this is what God does to sinners. This is what sin does to people. You have to take an, a horribly indirect approach to it to fit with the culture and the fact that you cannot point your finger at a sinner and say, if you do that, this is what God will do. These will be the consequences that you experience because this is what God said will happen to you. You have to talk in the third person. You have to say, well, if someone does this, then this is what God will do. And it really, it it goes against the scriptural presentation of the gospel, but that's the way their culture is. And the challenge that a missionary faces is how much of God's approach do I use in contrast to how that's accepted in the culture? Right. It is a huge, it is a huge challenge. We want to tell them because we want them to know but if we tell them in such a way that their ears close, there's no conversation. Yeah, it's 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 ended. So it's a that was probably the the hardest challenge for us 
is to be able to deal in the ambiguous word world of the third person all the time. Wow, wow. And so having built into that culture a, a de-emphasis on personal responsibility, um, that leads to all kinds of other spiritual problems, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And and I, I think that I've heard you describe, and not necessarily not, um, – not singularly to to the region of the world that you're working in, but it's really hard for us to appreciate um, in the states, um, given some some Christian heritage in our country, a an influence, obvious influence historically of the Bible. It's hard to really appreciate the um, the sinfulness, the sensuality. The, the depravity that is actually built into the culture in places where the devil has ruled almost uh, unopposed for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. <laughs> yes, that's a good point, and more will come up on that if we talk about language at all, language acquisition and the importance of, of language learning. But in America, we do have a basis of righteousness, we have a basis of justice, we have a basis of morality, and that is all based on the scriptures and how the you know our founding fathers built a nation that was strongly influenced by the Bible. You go into a country and a culture that has no standard, everything is ambiguous, everything is is left up to person a person's interpretation. There is no authority, even though there are some other religious holy books, so to, uh, so called. Uh, the standards are all different, and there is so there's so much confusion in society that corruption becomes righteousness, and yeah. everything that is good becomes evil, and everything that's evil becomes good. Yeah, and it's. It's a society that desperately needs the truth of the gospel clearly communicated to them because it is the only standard of righteousness that can bring sanity to all the insanity that goes on without Christ. So with that being said, though, you you do have to develop your ministry methods with the with the culture in mind. You you because in order to have those kinds of pointed spiritual conversations it uh, it takes time to develop the the sort of equity that will support that. Um, it, some of some of the methods, I guess what I'm uh, what I'm what I'm getting to, and what I want to what I'd like for you to uh, address a bit is some of the methods that we're accustomed to employing stateside in our culture and in other fields around the world are less effective in the region that you're working in because of the collectivistic element, because of the shame honor component. So these things do, these cultural considerations do inform your ministry methods. Um, so it, can you comment on how your ministry methods are informed by these cultural features? Well, the cultural features, in a lot of respects, even in a collectivistic society, it's, it's not all horrible. There are a lot of good characteristics of the collectivistic society that are biblical, in the fact that the nucleus of the family, the head of the household must be respected and everybody else falls in line underneath that. And there is a jurisdictional structure uh, for all of it. But it's also a much more polite society in the fact that if one person is speaking, everybody else stops until that person gets done. 
And, and in America, we are all about winning an argument or making a point and not communicating with people. When we try to present the gospel, we try, this is the truth. Now you have to believe it. We get aggravated if we don't have results. We, were, we are driven by results. In a collectivistic society, we're driven by relationships. That is mm. a benefit. When nationals come to our house, it took us a while to learn that when a person had something to say and he really wanted to talk with you, you might, you might sit there for 15 or 20 minutes until he finished his thought. And if you interrupt his thought, you have lost respect. So as he's talking, you know, I've already, as we do in America, we formulate our response in the mind. And, you know, we're really half listening to what the person is saying because we already know what we want to say. And we're building our argument base and we're building our logical flow to be able to win this point. When this person is talking and expressing his heart, which is you really want people to do that with you. Sure. You have bridged the cultural gap when they want to come and sit down and talk with you and will share their real thoughts with you. And, and so sometimes I have to sit and listen, and there will be a pause in the conversation for sometimes 30 seconds. But as I watch the body language of this person, I know that they're not finished, and they're still trying to formulate their thoughts and state their thoughts. And it's, their body language is clear that when they get to the end of their statement, now they look to you for a response. And so the flow of conversation slows way down. But it takes on more uh, of a depth of a relationship than people in America. You know, I don't have time. i got five minutes to talk to you. I'm standing on your doorstep. Here's a gospel track. Take this and read it. Bye-bye. I'm going to the next person. When a simple conversation may take two or three hours, and that same conversation in the States would be over in 30 minutes. Right. But you've built a relationship. So we've had to learn to just be quiet and listen and not over-talk anyone and slow things down, and it's okay. And another cultural issue is when someone comes to your house to visit, they determine when it's time to end the conversation and leave. And it may be four or five or six hours. <laughs> Usually we say, well, thank you for coming. And they take the hint and, you know, off they go. So, well, you know, he's tired of talking to me. So I guess I better get in the car and leave. You can say it all day, but until they're ready to leave, uh, they're staying. <laughs> and so, you know, you invite them for supper and then you invite them for breakfast or whatever. But it's you have to adapt to that because that's that's the way they do it. Yeah. And it sounds like it really takes uh, a lot of patience in terms of if the to realize that evangelization, um, that those are not uh, that we're not going to see souls converted in in these sorts of settings with a in a 15 or 20 minute encounter. It takes a takes a relationship and takes a lot of patience, it sounds like. Right. You have to be believed before you will be believed. And you have to build a relationship with the person that they know that you are interested in them, that you actually care about what they think, what they feel, what they understand, as you try to tell them something that they have never heard, something that they don't understand, and goes against every fiber of their social structure. 
So I remember you um, referencing an illustration. I don't know if this was a uh, an actual incident that you experienced, or if you just were just describing the the cultural piece. But you referenced the jurisdictional element and how there's a very um, significant organization to the family structure, and that that family structure is extremely important to the people and you don't transgress those jurisdictional lines and and there's an emphasis on um, honoring the elders and so forth um, so you I, I heard you um, you use an illustration of maybe say giving a Bible for instance having a desire to give a Bible to a member of the family and that there may be an interest among a young person, but if you if you jumped on that and gave that uh, Bible to this young person, then that would be something that they would have to be sneaking around with. And if it was discovered, it would create a lot of antagonism with that family structure, whereas perhaps it could be more effective if you approached the family head, the leader in that group and actually obtain. And I, I think that, that maybe that's uh, not the way that we typically think either, um, uh, honoring those jurisdictional lines and honoring that uh, the, the elder structure. Yes, that's an excellent point. Um, with a collectivistic society based on the family and the head of the family, it's important to know a couple of things. You need to know who is the head of this thing. Um, in some cultures, it's going to be a man. In some cultures, it's going to be a woman. And whether we like that or not, we have to accept that and recognize that and work within those parameters to even be heard. But even jewelry, uh, in our part of the world, a man's rings is a statement of his social status. Hmm. So if a man is a head of a family, but he might have several rings with some really big rocks, and we would think, well, that's just kind of a really gaudy thing. That is a statement of his social position in society. If, if we would go to someone, you know, a child and want to give them a gift or something without the permission of the elder or the eldest, we would be considered a threat. Why are you bribing my kids? Why are you doing this? Uh, maybe I should have that first. I'm the head of the household. You should honor me with this gift first. And then if you want my grandkids to have this, you should give it to me so I can give it to them. Then my grandkids can take this gift from their grandfather with respect rather than going around that and totally losing respect. And, and actually your gift, instead of being a gift, and, and you, you have to learn about socially accepted gifts. And the, I mean, it's a huge expense. <laughs> to move into a new area and go give gifts to all of your neighbors. Usually, you know, in America, you move into a neighborhood and all your neighbors bring gifts to you. But that's <laughs> not the way it is there. You know, wow. you moved into the area, you have money, so you, you, uh, you bring stuff to us. But respecting that chain of command and going to the elder and saying, I would like to give this to your family, and here is one in a collectivistic society, you have to have one for everybody. Wow. So if you know that this man has uh, half a dozen grandchildren, you better at least have six or eight gifts because there's probably some you don't know about. <laughs> and when you do that and they go, wow, this man understands, you know, our culture and he respects us. 
then you gain the respect that you need to be able to present the message. And so the the reason all this is so important, of course, is because the idea is to have a, a long-term effective ministry among these people, not a flash in the pan, not just showing up for a, a, a short-term, something to write home about. But um, I guess that's why learning culture is so important, because you really can't have a, a long-term effective ministry if you don't familiarize yourself with these things. If, if we think about learning culture, and, and let's flip this around. All right, so we're Americans. We live in our country. We know our country. We know our language. We've got an active command of 40 or 50 or 60,000 words, maybe 100 or 200,000 words, depending on what profession that we're in. So someone from Central America comes up to the southern border, spends two years learning our language, comes into one of our groups, and in broken English tries to tell us what's wrong with our Bible, what would we do with him? <laughs> and that's what we're doing, going into a foreign culture and a foreign language. This guy is eating rice with his hands. We're eating our hamburgers, and we're eating our stuff the way we do. We use a fork, he uses a spoon, and we're going to listen to him? We don't. We would throw his credibility out the window before he opened his mouth. But he might have the truth, and we might not have it. But we throw the truth out based on his presentation. Yeah. So when we go into a foreign setting, we learn a language for a couple of years. We're still talking like an infant. And, and we try to tell them everything that you have known and learned about deity and eternity and all the rest of that is really not believable, and it's going to take you to hell. Uh, and you need to believe what I have to say. And they look at us and go, why? Why should I believe you? You don't care enough about me and my culture and my language to even be able to communicate to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. So let's talk about communication and language acquisition. Um, I saw you give a, as you have, I've heard you discuss these things in the past, you gave a really interesting illustration of the importance of that initial investment in language and culture when somebody arrives on the mission field. Now, maybe a bit of background is, is helpful. It is easy oftentimes for missionaries to go to a foreign mission field, and because of the novelty of their presence, they can stay really, really busy. Uh, traveling here and there, preaching in every door that's open, and and having very surface relationships, but being being sort of shuttled around as honored as the foreigner, but they are continually perceived as the foreigner. They haven't learned the language. They haven't really learned the culture. But you sort of graphed, if I recall, the potential long-term fruitfulness of a foreign worker when these early investments are made in language and culture and and it almost charts like compound interest like if you'll make those early investments it just turns the the potential for fruitfulness uh upward for much further do you remember the illustration that i'm referring to oh yes <clears throat> yes and this is something that i wish more foreign missionaries would I mean, people that are on the field would actually stop and evaluate their language abilities, uh, evaluate their ability to be understood. 
when a person goes to a foreign language, generally Americans know one language. We know one language. We know one culture. Most everybody else in the world knows three or four, five or six languages and as many cultures. So they can adapt to many different things a whole lot quicker than we can. So we go in as an American and we begin to learn the language and we want to present the gospel to them so fast and we have such a burden for souls that we learn about 1,200 to 2,000 words and then we start ministry. And because we're white and because we're weird, (laughs) strange, people come just to hear and laugh at our accents. They come because you have several cute kids. They come because your wife fixes her hair funny. There's all kinds of reasons that people come to hear the missionary that's not because they want to hear the gospel. You're the new kid on the block. You're the new entertainment. You're the sideshow. You're whatever. And a missionary that thinks that people are coming because they're hungry for the gospel has not stopped to ask the right questions and is probably not skillful enough to do so and probably hasn't got enough time and doesn't want to take the time to know the truth. But uh, the average child preschool learns between two to 3,000 words per year in any culture. This is without any formal training. By the time a person is 20 years old, they have an active command of 20 to 30,000 words. Now, a missionary going to the field in his two years of language learning, and generally we get the cheapest option with somebody that was recommended by somebody else. And so we learn all the bad habits of some other national that doesn't even really know how to use their language very well. And we mark and identify ourselves as a sloppy ambassador for Christ that is satisfied with a substandard presentation when we are supposed to be a representative of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are an ambassador for Christ with the intent to establish embassies on foreign soil, which belongs to the devil right now. But we're going to set up an embassy, a local church, to where Christ can be represented and proclaimed, and this is new territory, and it's a new jurisdiction, it's a spiritual, and and our language is so sloppy that we can't even hardly order our food at the restaurant properly, and then we're going to represent Christ this way. I think we should do something greatly different. And my recommendation is, uh, let me back up just a second, to statements that nationals have told me just within within the last year. And, and one uh, pastor friend that I have has been very open with me, and he told me, he said, we have seen a lot of missionaries come through here, and here's what they do. They go to this language school, or that language school, or, or a language helper, which is one guy, but he, he's, he is a Christian, but he's not a language expert, but he's a Christian. And so they flock to him because he's a Christian, Or they go to this other school over here that's just an eight-month or nine-month program. And when you finish with that, you're going to know less than 2,000 words. But you have a certificate. So you immediately jump into ministry, and you try to tell everybody what to do. You try to Americanize them with all your American styles and standards. And, And this national told me, he said, but none of them, this is his words, none of them care enough to learn our culture and our language enough to really communicate the truth to us. 
And with everyone that comes through, we are disappointed because they'll reach that plateau. They will level out on that plateau and they will never increase their learning beyond that point. And we go, if you had something to tell us, we'll never get it because your language skills will never reach that level. So my recommendation is anyone going to any country, go to the best language university in the country, spend as many years as you have to spend there getting it. And if you spend four, five, six, seven years there learning the language, then you walk into the pulpit, then you walk into ministry, and people can actually understand. Now, you, your ministry will grow and bloom, and you will be believable. People will listen to you. They will listen to you because you can communicate to them. We're talking about concepts here. How, with a 2,000-word vocabulary, is, can anyone effectively communicate the true concepts of biblical deity? <laughs> the basic concept of deity. Wow. Can, with the 2,000-word vocabulary, can you ask enough questions to identify the picture of deity that is in a national's mind so you will know that when you talk about God, he has the same picture in his mind? And if you cannot ask the questions that can bring these, these abstract concepts to some kind of a concrete understanding, you're a failure, an utter, absolute failure who believes you're not. You've deceived yourself into believing because I have 2,000 words in my vocabulary, maybe 3,000 words. Would well, you know a three-year-old child has that? Yeah, and we're not even talking about trying to explain justification, propitiation, redemption. We're talking at this stage about trying to explain to people who God is. And uh, we just don't have the tools when with so, so little language exposure. So in, when, in, in tracking that, uh, in demonstrating this, drawing this out as a learning curve, um, even though it looks like there's so little accomplished on the front end. Because obviously, if you're in language school, you're not out necessarily doing evangelism because you don't have the proficiency to communicate as yet. Um, but if uh, so, there's a there's another element where we need to recognize as sending and supporting churches that it is legitimate for God to have little to report for a protracted period of time if he's properly applying himself to the language to language acquisition because that is going to multiply his capacity to be effective in the future that's a two-way street absolutely the supporting churches must understand that for our men to be professionals they have to be professionals in my opinion our churches are making several grave mistakes in that because we have a zealous young person, we want to get them to the field, but we get them to the field without the proper training. They, they go into an environment that they're not used to, into a culture that they don't understand, with a language that they cannot grasp the concepts of. They do not know, uh, they do not know the gra grammatical structure. In their own language of English, they may not be able to tell a difference between an adverb and, and a participle. And they cannot explain to you the difference between a semicolon and a colon. Well, if your training level is to the point that you do not understand the own punctuations of your King James Bible, and you cannot tell the interaction between the eight parts of speech, 
and you're going to a foreign language to try to apply what you do know in English to this language, which does not work like English, is it any wonder that we're having a huge failure rate of 75% of the missionaries that we send out never return to the field for the second term? Is there any reason that the frustration level is so high with culture and language that the failure rate with the best and brightest people we can produce is so high? Why? We should stop and think what is causing the problem. We are sending people, we're sending green recruits to where we should be sending Navy SEALs. So, brother, this is a this is such an important subject because, um, yeah, the, the the failure the failure rate is so high, and um, we're obviously not doing something on the front end. It's and at this at this juncture, we're not even we're not only talking about language acquisition. Once you get to the field, we're talking about the responsibility of local church local churches that are sending men to to raise the standard and have some expectations of the men that they're going to send. So brother C, what are some things that, what are some things that sending churches, what are some things that local churches need to be more diligent about to make sure that our missionary candidates are properly prepared, even to learn to, to make are prepared to make the preparations once they get to the mission field? Well, that's a good question. And there's, there's, I mean, there could probably be several podcasts <laughs> built about that sure. and probably should be. And sure. I'm sure you will think about that and, and do that in the future. But one of the first things that I think a pastor, and, and I'm a local church man, I believe anybody sent out should, should be sent out by the recommendations of their local pastor. Amen. I think some local pastors have an idea that if God called somebody, God's going to take care of all of this stuff. And, and the pastor does not do his job on apprenticeship. We're, one, one thing that I have met on the field and with missionaries over the last 40 years of ministry as a supporting pastor or as an observing missionary on the field is that men that have gone to the field in their younger years, they, they plateau out with their language, they get frustrated, but they endure and their ministry never becomes really productive, and they learn how to tread water and write you know, creative newsletters to keep support coming when they're really frustrated out of their mind. But they've gone to the field. I mentioned apprenticeship a minute ago. They've gone to the field to, quote, plant churches, and they've never done that in America. I think we need to rethink the training, the local church training that these men need to have. And it, it would be my opinion, if, if I had a pastor ask me not too long ago, he said, if you were pastor in the States, how would you handle missions? And I would say I would try to teach and train every one of my young men to go anywhere in the world that God would call them to go. And, I, and if one approached me and said, brother, I want to go to this mission field, I would say, fine, I'm all behind it. But when you have evangelized and discipled three families and added them to this church by your work alone. You have contacted them. You have led them to the Lord. You have discipled them. You have mentored them to the point that these three families, just three, are supportive of missions. They're giving their tithe to the church, and they're faithful, and they're trying to reach other people. Then I'll let you go to the field. 
These that are, might be kind of an off-the-wall yeah. deal, but I think if our men knew that their pastor was not breathing down their neck, but expecting them to do what they say they're going to do, do it here, prove yourself as a man, and, and, and now you will have some confidence to know what to do when you get there. You yeah. will know the ropes, you'll know the principles, and uh, after you adjust to the culture and the language, it'll just all flow, and the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're doing the right thing, and you'll have confidence in the face of opposition. So I think, first, if pastors could do more apprenticeship with a view of training these young men or older men to go to whatever country that God calls them to go to, uh, that, that would be positive. Another thing would be not expecting them to do more than they can do. Sure. We've, we've had people, we were on the field for six weeks and people asking us how many churches we had started. <laughs> and my response to them was, how many churches do you start while I was coming down here? <laughs> you want me to do this in our country and you're not doing it in America? I mean, stop and think of the logic of this. Amen. I have to learn language. I have to learn a culture. I have to survive sicknesses and paperwork and all of that. You don't have any of that to do. How's come you haven't started more than I have? <laughs> but we're under the microscope, and the expectation is greater. I think we need to change and refocus our expectations some to, all right, we've trained you what we can here. You know the principles. You know how this local church thing is supposed to work. Now, you get down there to the field. You learn the language and the culture. Write us letters about that. Tell us about your cultural experiences and all. We're not going to expect you to do anything else until you get this down pat. Amen. That would be helpful, I think. Brother, those suggestions are are probing. Um, of course, I, I think maybe the, so much of our emphasis in, in terms of missions, uh, a call to missions, is we're just so carnal, we're so pleasure-centered, we're so entertainment-oriented that so much of our emphasis, the emphasis of our mission is to surrender, 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 surrender. Well, actually, it's it's more than just deciding to go, isn't it? Um, uh, a call to go, is, is, as has been said, a call to go is a call to prepare. And there is a, there's a, uh, a level of consecration um, that is required before ever going to a foreign mission field um, and a level of involvement to demonstrate that you can make it on a foreign mission field. But by the same token, as you point out, we've got to have some realistic expectations of these men as they go to their foreign mission fields and not expect – uh, so unfortunately, missions has been, I think, effective missions has been undermined by sensational reports that are oftentimes inaccurate or inflated Absolutely. because of because of the weight of expectation that people are just scores of people are going to get saved and churches are going to be established. That is the goal. But we need to be more realistic about how to do that effectively over the long term. That will be our stopping point for today. In the next program, we will jump back in where we've left off today, continuing with some thoughts on what pre-field missionary preparations are in order. Additionally, we'll talk with Brother C about some of the hardships and first fruits that they've seen since deploying to Southeast Asia. That second half of the conversation is, in my opinion, one of the most moving and convicting segments that I've recorded on this podcast. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen today. You can subscribe to this program on a variety of different podcasting platforms and apps. And if it's been a blessing to you, please feel free to invite others to tune in or rate and review the program wherever you may be listening. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. Thank you.